Galatians 4, verse 1 through 7. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. This is God's word. In our scripture reading this morning, we have a lesson on the fullness of time. When did Jesus Christ come into the world? An important answer, which does not include a particular day or month or year, is that Christ came in the fullness of time. You see it right there in verse 4. Of course, he came on a particular day, on a particular month, in a particular year, of course. But more importantly, he came at the fullness of time. He did not come too early. He did not come too late. But when the time was ripe, the Son of God was born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those under the law. He came when the perfect time had arrived. When we look to all the things happening in the world when Christ was born, we soon discover none of those things gave any kind of clue that the ages had ripened, that we had reached a tipping point, ready for the birth of Messiah. There was no great catastrophe at the time of his birth. The deadliest volcanic eruption in European history, Mount Vesuvius, would not happen till 79 AD. There was no great political upheaval at the time of his birth. Rome had already taken occupation of Israel in 63 BC, and the assassination of Julius Caesar had already happened in 44 BC. Not even the Jews showed any sign of being ripe for the Messiah. When wise men came from the east to Jerusalem looking for a baby born king of the Jews, none of the leaders of Israel joined in the search. None. The wise men went down to Bethlehem from Jerusalem alone. Even though Herod knew, even though the chief priests knew, even though the scribes knew that they were going and why they were going, but they went alone. The Apostle John says that Christ came to his own and his own people did not receive him, John 1.11. So Christ came into the world in the fullness of time, but the fullness of time does not mean a fullness of desire for him. Christ would become the desire of nations, just as Haggai 2.7 says. But he was not our desire when he came. 
As Isaiah foretold it, he was despised and rejected by men, one from whom men hide their faces. Isaiah 53, verse 3. And beloved, this all reminds us that our human nature does not, does not naturally desire God. We do not naturally meditate on God. We do not naturally order our lives around God. We do not naturally rank our priorities for God. We do not naturally desire to worship God. We do not naturally seek God. At our best, at our best, our back is turned to God with dull indifference. At our worst, we are shaking our fist at God with an attitude of superiority, complaint, accusation. But both of these, our worst and our best, reveal the same thing. By nature, we are a stone-cold race of men and women toward God. And the Bible calls this coldness spiritual death. Ephesians 2.1 says, All Christians must remember we were once dead in our trespasses and sins. So here's the point. No goodness in us brought God's clock to the fullness of time. Strike the idea that we made it happen. The goodness was all in God. God sent forth his son to redeem us at the time he did because there is a love in God that cannot be defeated by the godlessness in us. Is that kind of love in you? It's not in me, but as a spark, a true and heavenly spark. But it is so weak compared to him. The fullness of time was not reached because the human race had gotten better. The fullness of time was reached because it had finally and fully been demonstrated how incapable, how powerless, how helpless the human race is in turning to God, in walking with God, in imitating God, in loving God. This is what marks the fullness of time. Not that man's abilities had finally proven him worthy of a gift from God, but the very opposite. Man's disabilities had fully proven him unworthy of a gift. It was then that God sent his son, the gift, to redeem us. Because then the elect of God would see most clearly the greatness of God's loving heart towards sinners. God wants us to be overwhelmed by his love, not question his love, not doubt his love, not be suspicious of his love. So he waits, and he waits, and he waits until the hopelessness of our fallen condition is fully ripe. Then he sends the very best thing he can send us, his own dear son. Now, of course, we were in a full state of hopelessness the moment our race fell with Adam's first sin. But the revelation of our hopelessness was not yet full until the law had run its course of testifying that no man 
can redeem himself even by the best law of God. So the fullness of time is all about God demonstrating our disabilities to make the gift of Christ all the more wonderful, all the more glorious to us. Now you probably noticed in verse 4 and verse 5 that both say something about the law. There is a connection between the fullness of time and the law of God. Hear those verses again. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. The divine son, our Lord Jesus, who was always with God, in eternity past, because he is God. He came down from heaven to put himself under all the obligations of the law. He who commanded the stars put himself under all the commandments. The divine lawgiver became a human lawbearer. Why? Right there's the answer. The scripture says to redeem those who were under the law. That's you and me, all the rest of us born of a woman. Divine law had failed to redeem us. It is that weak. Instead, divine law has crushed us. Divine law has condemned us. Every time we wanted to draw near to God, we were confronted by his law. Do this. Don't do this. That's the ministry of the law. The law towered over us, and it kept revealing to us how unfit we were to draw near to God and be kept near to God. In one sense, there is, of course, nothing wrong with the law, just like there is nothing wrong with speed limits. I didn't hear an amen. <laughs> I'll take that as a advice. There's nothing wrong with speed limits. The law simply exposes what is wrong with us. But the law cannot fix what is wrong with us. It cannot fix our deep inner rebellion. The law cannot fix our deep inner coldness toward God. Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. Written by another John, John Bunyan. What then is the connection between the fullness of time and divine law? Paul clearly sees a connection. The connection is this. God gave humanity divine law through Moses to demonstrate how hopeless our race is in drawing near to the living God and dwelling with God forever. Without the giving of law, we would not see how deep our need really is. Paul makes this argument in detail in Romans 7. When the commandment, thou shalt not covet, finally reached his mind, he discovered how rank he was with all kinds of covetousness. He had not made that discovery without the law. You would drive 95 because your car says 95. 
without a speeding sign. So God's demonstration of our need and our hopelessness reached its fullness when Christ was born. The demonstration had run its course. Paul makes this argument in another way at the end of Galatians 3. I'll let you look at that for homework. I want to share with you a remarkable statement the same apostle makes in 2 Corinthians 3.9. It's a little more economical than us going back into the previous chapter and working through his argument there. In 2 Corinthians 3.9, Paul says something stunning that I hope more Christians will learn to say about the law. He says there, the ministry of the law was a ministry of condemnation. Boom. He drops the mic. And wise Jewish men follow him to ask questions. The ministry of the law was the ministry of condemnation. What's your ministry, beloved? What's your ministry to people living in sin all around you? Is it a ministry of condemnation? You're killing them if that's all you got. You're burying the dead if that's all you got. The ministry of condemnation had to run its course so that God's law could, as Galatians 3.22 says, imprison everything under sin. All the pride of men was to be silenced so the announcement of something better than the law would be heard. So for a moment, think of God, just for a moment, think of God as being a great, beautiful house. Now, if you think that's blasphemous, remember the Lord Jesus said, think of God as a hen. It's not blasphemous. The Lord says he's a refuge, a high tower. So think for a moment, of God as being a great, beautiful house, full of strength. At dusk, you see the lights inside, a house full of warmth, a glorious dwelling place that will never, ever fall down, that will never disappoint. Now, there's a narrow path up to the front door of this house. The path first leads to an iron gate. And standing at that gate is the guardian of the house who is called Mr. Law. Every time someone comes up to the gate, Mr. Law looks them up and down, head to toe. There's no smile on his face. What does he say? Mr. Law condemns relentlessly. He says, you are not clean enough for that house. You are not dressed right to go in. Your hair is not right. Your hands are not clean. Your shoes are wrong. Your shirt is wrinkled. Your face is dirty. This is the ministry of condemnation. This is the ministry of Moses. It was a necessary ministry because of the honor of the great house. And of course, what Mr. Law really means is you have coveted. You have lust in your heart. You are angry. You hate many people. You are proud. You are selfish. You have blasphemed the house. You have taken shelter in counterfeit homes, many counterfeit homes. You are an idolater. That's what he really means, right? 
Mr. Law loves the great house. He does not want you to ruin it. But he can only keep you out. He cannot make you fit to go in. So he says, you love this house? Well, then stay close by. Work for me out here near the house. Check in with me every day, and I will let you know how you are doing. You can be a slave on this land. But every day, you go to check in with him, and guess what? It's the same old speech from Mr. Law. Relentless condemnation. But suddenly, one day, in the fullness of time, out the front door comes running the son of the house. He comes running down the path wearing the same flesh and bones as those who are being condemned at the gate. And what does the son say? He says, silence, Mr. Law. This one is my brother. This one comes home with me. I have met all the demands of the law against him. I have borne in my flesh on the cursed tree all the penalties that you have designed for him, Mr. Law. Even death, even the pangs of hell. I have been condemned in his place. He comes home with me. This one is now mine. I own him. I bought him with my own blood. I have redeemed him. We have adopted him. And he points to the house. We have adopted him. Mr. Law, this one is now as much a son of the house as I am the son of the house. And he puts his arm around you. And he takes you into his arms and he breathes into your face. He breathes his life into you. By the offering of his body, he has given you the status of sons. By the breathing of his spirit, he now gives you the experience of sons. The law could never give those to you. Mr. Law could only give you the status and experience of slaves. Slaves could never call the builder and the owner of the house their father. Ridiculous for a slave to do that. But Jesus gives you his own status and his own experience of his father. This is what verse 6 is about. It says, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Beloved, the son has so thoroughly redeemed you from under the law, being condemned in your place, that he now dwells within you by his spirit. That's how clean he has made you by his own obedience and righteousness. Because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. And his spirit keeps lifting your heart toward God, is the point of verse 6. The spirit keeps lifting your heart toward God again and again, as only a son's heart could be lifted to God. Father, dear father, 
is a fair translation of that Aramaic, Abba. Instead of looking away from God in the shame of condemnation, the Spirit keeps pressing you toward God, making sure your experience of God is not that of an unworthy slave, but of a beloved child. Martin Luther put these matters in these words, As certain as we are that Christ pleases God, so sure ought we to be that we also please God because Christ is in us. We daily offend God by our sins, yet as often as we sin, God's mercy bends over us. Our certainty is of Christ, so long as he sits at the right hand of God to intercede for us, we have nothing to fear from the anger of God. Beloved, have you yet been overwhelmed with the love of God? It's the only thing that's going to deliver you from a mediocre life of keeping pet sins around. The law will not do it. The love of God burning in your heart will do it. The law of God shows you the way to walk out of sin, but it has no power to make you walk. We must teach the way the apostles teach, even about the law. Beloved, this is the experience of God, the Holy Spirit, in renewing in you again and again your sonship. He keeps drawing you near to God in the bond Christ himself has with God. As your dear loving father who receives you fully as his child in Christ. Think of it this way. Every time Mr. Law now sees you inside that house, he points his cold, bony finger at you and he cries out, Slave! 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 He hasn't changed his tune. He's not going to change his tune. That's his job. He is especially loud in that way when you sin. In the house especially loud. Mr. Law cries out like a ring wraith, closing in on a hobbit. I waited all year to say that. (laughs) But he does. But the spirit of Christ in you will silence Mr. Law now. The spirit will cry out not against you, but he'll cry out in your heart for you and say, Son, Son, Father, Father, And this cry of his will be a testimony to you again and again that you are not a slave, but a son. And your father will hear and comfort you again and again, confirming your true status before him in Christ. The spirit will zealously always prevail over Mr. Law. So let me ask you, do you know what time it is? congregation. It is the fullness of time. Christ has come. God has sent forth his son. The heavenly gift has been given. It is time to come home. It is time to be sons through the divine son. 
It is time to come home to God by simple faith in Christ. If you are still out at the gate trying to convince Mr. Law to let you in, you do not know what time it is. He will never let you in. Don't tell yourself, I will start loving God as soon as I get my life cleaned up. You will never get yourself cleaned up. Mr. Law will always remind you of that. Only the divine son can clean you. Only the divine son can remove a guilty conscience from you and break sin's dominion in your life. Only the son can. The law cannot do it. Embrace the son. Embrace him. That's the language of our shorter catechism. Embrace him because he will never refuse to embrace you who sincerely confess the law has condemned you. He will never refuse to embrace you who sincerely confess Jesus is your only hope. He will never turn away from those who make that humble confession. He will embrace you. He will apply his condemnation to you and so free you from condemnation. He will breathe his life into you and he will bring you all the way home forever. And you will learn that living with him makes you more valiant, more valiant in the fight against sin than Mr. Law could have ever made you. Why is that? Why is it that living in the great house with Jesus Christ makes us more valiant in our fight against sin than Mr. Law could ever have made us? Because Christ overwhelms you with the amazing love of your heavenly Father, and it becomes harder and harder to sin against love. Tell yourself that when you keep going after the same sins. Tell yourself, I am not overwhelmed by the love of God enough in Jesus Christ. And then you will know what you must think on. You will know what you must pray on. We become so much more valiant because of this great, wonderful, and amazing love given in the fullness of time. And this is why you see such a great difference, or you should see such a great difference between the love of Christians and the love of worldlings. The worldling, having not experienced the love of God, having not seen the son of the house run out the door down to the gate, the worldling does not love God because they haven't seen it. The worldling does not desire to worship God. The worldling does not desire to confess Jesus Christ before men. The worldling does not speak of God, does not pray to obey God better. The worldling does not work to help others come to know God. The worldling only loves a few people who like them. They cannot love their enemies, nor can they love the church of Jesus Christ because they have not experienced the love of Jesus Christ. They have not seen the sun run down the path. But the Christian is filling up with the, with the love of God, right? The Christian now imitates the divine son and goes out searching to bring others into the house. 
others who are still under condemnation. The Christian loves their enemies and prays for them. The Christian loves the church, all those strange, weird people who Christ has brought home because they're in home with you. And the Christian, above all, loves God because God first loved them. Let us pray. Father, we ask today that you would print upon our hearts the truths written in your word and that we would find we have easy access to them. Father, we agree with our apostle that indeed the law has been a ministry of condemnation to us for that has been its chief purpose to drive us to Christ and to not drive us into a fool's errand of self-performance and self-deceit. We confess, O Lord, with our apostles that we were once dead in our sins and trespasses. And though we had even had the law upon our conscience before we heard the Ten Commandments, we couldn't even keep our own rules. We lied to men and didn't tell them because we knew it was wrong. We stole from men and didn't tell them because we knew it was wrong. And some of us in this room have even kept the commandments far from us because we fear the discovery of how wrong we really are. Lord, we thank you, we praise you that you have brought the commandment to us, that you have allowed the ministry of condemnation to touch us, to reach us, to reveal to us how hopeless we are in our sinful nature so that we could indeed look for the place where hope truly comes out the front door at the fullness of time the gift of your Son, breathing the Spirit into us, adopting us as sons of grace. Father, we praise you for the Savior. We thank you for the ministry of Jesus Christ, who, though without sin, died as a transgressor, died under the pile of spit and phlegm that men threw upon him as he walked the Via Della Rosa, the way of suffering, bleeding from the lashings and from the piercings, unable to breathe, dying as a condemned man, though without sin, so that we who truly deserve condemnation could become sons of God. Lord, we thank you for such love. We pray that we would not get over it. In Jesus' name, amen.